All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome. It's a kickoff, really, to talk with Congressman Ted Budd of the North Carolina's 13th District. Uh, this is myself, Tom Fletcher, I'm the Deputy Director of Government Affairs and Americans for Prosperity. Excuse me. I'm joined by Tyler Boyd, our uh, Deputy State Director in North Carolina. And the man of the hour joining us is uh, Congressman Ted Budd. We really, really appreciate him uh, taking time out of a, what I know is a busy time um, off and on Capitol Hill. And uh, re really, really excited to kind of talk about what's going on there. And uh, if you can kind of peel the curtain back on kind of, um, you know, what they're doing in D.C. and kind of looking towards what other things might be coming down the pike. So with that, I'm going to give a brief uh, uh, just a bio of the congressman and then we'll jump right in, if that's OK with everybody. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. So, congressman Ted Budd is, uh, represents North Carolina's 13th district and is in his third term. He sits on the Financial Services Committee where he uses his real world experience to roll back the restrictive regulations to strangle job creation in our country. Working at a young age on his family's cattle and chicken farm and for their janitorial landscaping business, he learned the importance of work ethic and common sense decision making. Congressman Budd and his wife have three children. They live in Davie County, North Carolina. He holds an MBA from Wake Forest University and a master's in educational leadership from Dallas Theological Seminary. So, Congressman, let me set the scene here for a second. Uh, we are here right now on February 16th, 2021. Less than two months ago, Congress passed nearly a trillion dollar package. Earlier in 2020, they passed a multi-trillion dollar package uh, of, you know, COVID relief, uh, of a COVID relief bill. So now all of a sudden we feel there's another $2 trillion package. This is all starting to add up, I know. Um, that includes state and local bailouts, $15 minimum wage, bail, uh, billions to transit agencies. You know, can you give us an update on what is going on really on Capitol Hill and kind of give us the state of play, the latest, if you will? I'm going to kind of bring it down and then we can zoom back out for a minute. So I, you mentioned in that joke there that I serve on the financial services committee on awesome committee to be on. I mean, it really sits at the hub of where people live and uh, where their money gets deposited into and how they live the rest of their lives. So I, I really love working on that, but when they do this reconciliation uh, type bill, which means they could pass it with 51 votes in the Senate, uh, they have to parcel it out to every committee, and then each committee finds areas, hopefully, to offset spending. So it's it's really a bit of a ruse here. So they're going to increase spending. I mean, it's one point nine trillion dollars, but we got to under my lead under leadership on my committee, it's Maxine Waters, and we're we're looking for our nine hundred billion dollars. Uh, excuse me, it's a, it's about uh, seventy billion dollars in our section that we're looking for. So they have all these wish list things that pertain to the financial services. And we say, well, what does this have to do with COVID? And they go, well, well nothing. And, and, and then they, well, how about we just do the part, like what can we do to get vaccinations rolled out more effectively uh, or increase production there or open schools and, and those sorts of things. And they went, well, well, nothing. And so I said, well, why don't we just do the stuff that actually we're naming the bill for and that's COVID relief. And it, it is completely disconnected from that. Now zoom back out, and as you opened up here, uh, we're talking about $1.9 trillion, which is trying to glom on to about a trillion dollars, almost a trillion dollars, that still hasn't been spent yet. Um, and we're seeing 18 states that are showing increased uh, revenues. They've come in above forecast. Uh, California had a $15 billion surplus in 2020. Uh, New York, I don't know how they did it, but they have revenues increase of 4%, probably which includes, um, you know, some of the COVID money from prior bills. But why add this more? I think they're just using it as, as a Trojan horse for a lot of other bad ideas, uh, which 
slow the reopening and slow the recovery of the United States. Absolutely. And I'm glad you, you talked about the states there. And I want to bring Tyler in. You can kind of, you know, talk about North Carolina a little bit and really what has made North Carolina, you know, a huge successor the last 10, 15 years. I myself have had a ton of friends moved to the state. It's a great destination, uh, not only for businesses, but for individuals, you know, great cost of living, low tax burden. So Tyler, if you can, uh, if you want to you know, kind of take over and, and uh, kind of touch, touch on that a little bit and kind of how that fits into the context of, you know, COVID relief and how we're trying to come out of this stronger, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think you hit it. Um, it's, it's all about the tax climate, the business climate in North Carolina. Uh, I saw an article today in the Des Moines Register that talked about North Carolina as the gold standard for, for tax policy and spending in the, in the country. And we've seen that over the last 10 years uh, with, with smart tax cuts, smart business tax cuts, creating a climate where businesses want to come, where we're not, we're not uh, in, in most cases, targeting certain businesses. We're targeting all businesses. We're saying North Carolina is a business-friendly state. Come here, bring your jobs here, um, and hire good, hardworking North Carolinians. And we've seen it. We've seen it play out uh, time and time again, where each year we end up with budget surpluses. Each and every year we see good, more good news um, on budget surpluses, including, I believe it was last week, uh, it came out that we were 4.1% over, uh, where, or a good amount over where we thought we were going to see um, revenues come in. And that just, it, it speaks to what we've done. And that's cut taxes uh, gradually year after year, uh, cut business taxes, create a good bit of uh, a smart business climate in North Carolina, and then control spending. Because if you do one without the other, uh, it's a recipe for disaster. If you cut taxes too low and then increase spending, you're just, you're digging yourself into a hole. And, and luckily we've seen leadership at the general assembly who's been willing to control spending, to see it, uh, grow because we are bringing more people into the state. So of course, spending is going to go up a little bit, but as long as it doesn't go up past uh, certain thresholds, we're going to be in good shape. And as long as we keep looking at what our tax rates are, looking at what our corporate tax rates are and continuing to make North Carolina business friendly, uh, we're going to see that growing. I mean, we see, I live right in Raleigh and uh, Raleigh grows every day. It's incredible to see how fast it's growing. I drive through Charlotte. It's incredible to see how fast Charlotte's growing. Um, and, and we're seeing this all over the state. And that's because uh, we've had smart tax policy and smart spending over the last 10 years. It's something that we're hoping we see echoed in DC. Um, we've had the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act a couple of years ago. That was great. North Carolinians really appreciated the tax cuts, uh, but it's, it's something we want to continue to see. So yeah. With that, Congressman, contrast what Tyler just said versus what you talk, you started off talking about, right? So um, Tyler's talking about things that have, you know, that are targeted, things that make sense. And now we have, uh, like you said, a $1.9 trillion bill. You know, talk about that for a second and really, and, you know, talk about the potential, you know, I know it's not popular in some quarters, but, uh, you know, you all saw the Larry Summers uh, op-ed in the Washington Post about how this actually might backfire in terms of, uh, you know, uh, this $1.9 trillion uh, bill. So talk about that for a little bit, just in terms of, you know, why the North Carolina approach might actually be able to teach DC something here. Yeah, so I, I want to go back to 10 years, and, and that's a really distinct number in our state. We'd had probably 140 years of Democrat control up until then. Um, uh, and a major change, actually, Tom Tillis, now our U.S. Senator, became Speaker of the, of the State House and really helped lead the charge for the House and the Senate to take back over. Um, and I think that really helped smartly kind of wind our taxes down and um, increase our revenues. It was, a, it was a great attractive to bring a lot of businesses here. 
uh, to grow our state. And I just think we've had a real formula for success. They were adamant to have a rainy day fund in this state, which most people don't. They want to borrow into the future like we're seeing right now with the U.S. government. And with that Republican state legislature, which we thankfully preserved in 2020, um, they and they've been there for 10 years, they have held on to that rainy day fund. <laughs> and boy, we had a lot more than a rainy day in 2020. We had a rainy year. So I'm grateful for them. But when you look at, when you look at the last spending that was done by the federal government, we've got unspent state and local government aid of up to $578 billion. Um, and so look, I think like, why not wind this back down? If you wanna do something targeted, what is it gonna take us to get open again? Everything should be focused on solving COVID, getting the economy restarted, uh, rather than these pet projects that are being rolled into the current CARES Act. I think that's going to slow down the recovery, uh, create uh, municipal dependence or patch up bad problems um, without actually fixing the problems or mask those problems. So I think I think this can really prolong it if uh, we do it as it's currently uh, configured. Absolutely. And so I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about, especially because being with being on the Financial Services Committee, um, you know, things that the, that the Congress should be doing, right? There are things that Congress, you know, can and should be doing that, frankly, they're not doing. I know reg reform is a big, uh, regulatory reform, excuse me, yeah. is a big priority of yours. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about that a little bit and how that could really, rather than continuing just to throw money at this problem um, that, our con that our economy faces, you know, talk about really the benefits that we could see from re regulatory reform. Well, it's interesting. This is about a $2 trillion COVID bill, but on an unrelated matter, Federal regulations cost our U.S. economy about $2 trillion every single year. I mean, post-COVID, it's $2 trillion. So uh, there's two bills I want to mention. Uh, the first, I'm actually, since Mark Meadows is no longer in Congress, I want to give him credit for this bill originally. I've taken over this bill. I'm adding new sponsors and co-sponsors to it. It's the Lessening Regulatory Costs and Establishing a Federal Regulatory Budget Act. So that's a mouthful. I'll read it again. The Lessening Regulatory Costs and establishing a federal regulatory budget act. And it protects an executive order by President Trump and it requires that for every new regulation that's being created, then you gotta take two off the books. Right. And so what we actually saw um, when President Trump was still in office is that uh, they were taking one bill, when they were bringing a new reg, they were taking out at some point up to 25. So you didn't have to just take two. We were seeing a lot of regs come off the books and which gave, uh, business owners a real opportunity, a real optimistic view of the future. Um, they thought that government was no longer against them for that four-year window, and which is why we've seen such incredible investment up until COVID. Uh, the other bill is um, it ensures that independent agencies comply with these important statutes because we've got, we've got these other independent agencies that aren't directly subject like the others are, like the SEC, uh, like the FDIC, ones that we ever see uh, in uh, the Financial Services uh, Committee, also the uh, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, um, Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Reserve, um, and the list goes on. Even the National Labor Relations Board. So uh, they've just ignored a lot of the dereg efforts of the Trump administration. Uh, so I think the uh, the Freedom from Regulations Act would uh, would help that. Um, and those are just a uh, Two of the right. bills before. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because you're a former small, you're a small business owner, and you know, can you talk Go about ahead. really the challenges that, especially, I mean, look, small business owners face challenges. Period. Let alone the uh, the impacts of a global pandemic. So kind of talk about you know how 
talk about really the the um the challenges they're facing right now right and and really how you know reg regulatory reform would be a good thing and it would be a timely thing given that they need it now more than ever and why you know just again states uh getting hundreds of billions of dollars from the federal government to bail themselves out etc really just kind of sets a sends the wrong message in terms of priorities when business owners out there are really hurting yeah we we, we really see that you think about uh, farmers and how important the food supply chain has been, especially during COVID, as they've had to reconfigure from restaurants direct to consumers. Um, and you go to, back to uh, WOTUS or Waters of the U.S., where they would take a, um, a wet spot in a farmer's field and they would deem it a federal wetland. And uh, how that would just stymie either construction or um, ag usage. Um, and the Trump administration was able to roll that back. Um, you, uh, you think of the cost of a new home, which is uh, 25%. So on a $200,000 house, you can thank uh, the federal government, state and local regulations for being uh, $50,000 of that home that you're going to mortgage for 15, 20 or, 50, or 30 years. Um, and so it's just, it's completely inflationary. Yes, we do need some smart regulations, but it's become quite onerous and it's choking the economy and it's really going to slow us down in our recovery. Absolutely. Um, keeping on the Financial Services Committee for a second, um, I know that one what a challenge uh, that previous Congresses have, ha have tried to grapple with is, you know, kind of trying to reduce and roll back the footprint of Dodd-Frank. Um, I know that given, uh, I know uh, the chair has, uh, you know, indicated that she has um, priorities to strengthen Dodd-Frank in some cases, but talk about really, um, and again, to tie into the small business uh, angle a little bit, really the challenges out there in terms of trying to get more access, uh, trying to get owner, uh, business owners, excuse me, more access to capital, really trying to encourage more businesses, frankly, than again, give it then just weighing them down with onerous regulations that you just pointed out and why really that's the key. That's one of the keys to this recovery. And just, and again, trying to get the, uh, you know, the American economy engine really back on track. What we see with uh, Dodd-Frank is it's taught banks that they don't need, they always have to move up market. And that's away from these startups and these small businesses. What we want to do is preserve the entrepreneurial economy where these small businesses can get a loan but it's so there's so much regulatory and compliance cost. When I would talk to these banks, uh, and this was under when we had taken over after uh, Obama was was president, uh, Jeb Hinterling was chair of the committee long before Maxine Waters was talking with these banks, and they said the fastest growing department in there it wasn't the loan department, it wasn't the mortgage department or auto loans, it was the compliance department. And that's non-revenue, that's more cost to the consumer, more cost to the depositor. And so what we need to do is, is we have to streamline that. Yes, we want honest dealers here. And I think by and large, we're, we have that and we have to deal with the, the very few bad actors, but there's so much uh, regulatory compliance that it's essentially forcing people to have, uh, to not even start, it's, it's sawing the bottom rungs off the ladder for those who wanna get into the economy, for those who wanna borrow a few thousand dollars to start a landscaping business or a janitorial, the background I came from. And so that's, that's what regulation does in the banking world. Um, and it, it, while they, the Democrats, they even changed the names of the subcommittees rather than just financial institutions, which is banking or capital markets uh, dealing with securities, they go consumer protection in capital markets or investor protection in capital markets and consumer protection. So they have to just throw that in there but the consumers they're protecting or the investors they're protection, protecting are the very ones that they're harming. And it's always the case with this left-leaning Democrat policies. Sure. Um, 
you know, you've been in Congress for uh, you know, three terms, and that's long enough to know how the place works, and maybe not quite long enough to to not uh, to not crush your optimism. You know, do you think because uh, you know you talk with your colleagues every day? You know, I know I meet with offices and lawmakers who you know there think there's some you know 60, 40, 70, 30 issues out there that people can agree on. Whether that is you know trying to provide uh, you know tr- trying to help small businesses. You know, are you? I know it's early and we're only, you know, a month into this Congress, you know, have you had any of those conversations, you know, or do you think that there's any willingness to try and, you know, work on things together or, you know, what's your read on that so far? And I know it's early. Yeah. Well, 70, 30 is different back home and in the cross, uh, you know, a purple state like North Carolina than on the house floor, right. because 70, 70, 30 issues inside COVID spending, there's 70, 30 issues right. in support of small business. But when you get on the House floor, I mean, it's so hyper-partisan and, uh, and we would love to talk to each other. Right. I, I really would. And we do still have a few conversations, um, but it, it is such a tense environment right now. We really need to get back to regular to, to legislating. We really need to get back to um, uh, reopening the economy. We need to get back to governing. And I would just say that the, it's what they put in these large packages that are not 70-30 issues right. uh, satisfy the extreme base. Those are the things we have to fight against. But sure, there's plenty of 70-30 issues out there in support of the economy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, to maybe kind of try and uh, close this out a little bit, I wanted to see if we could back up for a second. And as we're looking, not necessarily long term, but in the near and medium term of this Congress, you know, we, we have this COVID relief bill being one thing. Talk about some of the things that you're looking at, um, obviously regulatory reform being one, but other things that you know, you might want to, uh, you know, continue to work on flag for, you know, the people, uh, you know, logging on today that really, you know, are important to you, your district, or just kind of maybe other issues that they're not aware of, you know, you working on. I know that's a lot of things. I really want to be a champion and get many of my colleagues on, all on my side of the aisle will be, and maybe a few on the other side of the aisle that are in support of election integrity, not just the name of it, uh, I'm, I'm very concerned about uh, HR1, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, you know, any bill that's got a number on it, like HR1 through 10 are the Democrats' priority House bills. And HR1 is all about locking down their majority, um, using taxpayer funding to support campaigns. And uh, I'm just completely, completely against that. One, it's expensive for the taxpayer. And two, it just doubles down on uh, uh, the lack of fairness and it tilts the scales um, and towards incumbency. And we need to allow challengers in uh, uh, Congress. So I'm very, very concerned about election integrity and HR1 voter ID, which very often is a local issue. Um, I don't know where, where AFP stands on that as a priority, but I think it's uh, it's the linchpin for the future. Well, I'm glad you mentioned HR1. Uh, we are way out in front on that issue. Obviously, I think you highlighted some of the concerns that not only um, you know, we have, but I think organizations, uh, you know, all over the country have, frankly, uh, in terms of, you know, what it does. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. There are two other things that I would just flag uh, for the audience, the things that we're really working on actively. Number uh, another one being the PRO Act, Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which essentially would repeal um, every state that has a right to work law. Um, mm-hmm. Does a really very troubling, uh, troubling development there. That's something that I would flag uh, for the for the audience. And as well, and you, know, you and Tyler have hit on this already, is uh, you know, some of the rollbacks that we can be expecting uh, potentially from this, uh, from this Congress, uh, you know, it's, uh, especially on the Tax Cut and Jobs Act front. I know that was something that you yourself fought very hard for and a lot of your fellow colleagues did. And 
the messages, uh, the messaging, sorry, coming out of uh, the White House and the Congress isn't exactly uh, encouraging on that front. So I would also just, uh, you know, throw that out there as well as something that we really need to be uh, concerned about in terms of any rollbacks of that. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's a great list of priorities to be focused on. But remember, let's set up to, uh, for me, for the, as a Republican to win in 2022. And then let's do what we said. Let's do what we said when we got there. Um, and let's get a broader array of us um, to actually be good stewards of a win for the two years that we have um, a future majority. And this is the thinnest majority that the Democrats have had since the late 1800s. Uh, and I think they're very fractured. And um, that is a hope that it's razor thin in the House. And of course, it's even with a vice presidential tiebreaker in the Senate. So uh, there is hope. And what we have to do is make sure we weigh in on those uh, vulnerable districts to, uh, to get our message out and, uh, and make sure that people know that, yes, we are for the forgotten American voice out there and that uh, a few of us in Washington still stand up for, uh, for them. Sure. Well, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're busy. Uh, this has been uh, wonderful to talk with you. Uh, Tyler, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, really, uh, we'll let you get back to it. I know, I, know there's a, I know it's a busy day, but thank you so much, uh, Congressman Ted Budd from the 13th District. Really, really appreciate your time. And uh, you know, good luck the rest of the week and uh, take care of yourself. Thank you. Y'all are great. Appreciate what you do. Yes, sir. Thanks,